My name is Eduardo Zanata. I'm Vice President of Operations at the Vita and an MBA graduate of the Harvard Business School. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the goal of bringing together a community committed to navigating the business world with our faith at the center of our lives. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you, both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And now I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankham, who will host this week's interview. Welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Today, I'm connecting with Cromwell Wong. How are you, Cromwell? Good. Very good. Thank you for inviting me and pleasure to yeah. be here. Awesome. Yeah. Now, uh, you were mentioning right before we record, there's a, there's a story behind your name. What, what, what's that, that story? Yeah. So, um, my dad, you know, like his background is more from Hong Kong area, British colony, right? That's kind of where it came from. So, he named me after Oliver Cromwell and he was a history minor. So, my oldest brother's name is Napoleon. And, you know, these were like dictators and kind of uh-huh. rulers of Europe, right? Nice. So my oldest brother and I, were we were two years apart. We're, we're two years apart. And so he's after Napoleon Bonaparte and I was after Oliver Cromwell, prime minister of the UK at that time. And so my youngest brother, who's nine years young, younger than me, um, his name he's named after St. Patrick. So one time we were having dinner and then my, my brother asked my dad, Dad, what changed? And was it because you figured out that, that Cromwell and Napoleon were all dictators, murders, that you decided to repent and change my <laughs> brother's name into Patrick after St. Patrick? And he, he was like, you should have just named him Mussolini. Would have, we would have had the trifecta of, <laughs> of dictators, you know? So that's the, that's the story there. Um, nice. That's what we, we were named after because he was a history minor. We were named after French and English generals. Nice. So my father really liked that. That's cool. That's cool. So maybe just uh, we'll just sort of build a foundation, put you in the context a little bit. Uh, Maybe just tell us about uh, where you're originally from and then take us from where you went to high school or whatever (laughs) school in those teenage years to your current through through your uh, professional and your professional life and all the jobs that you've had. So. Sure. Um, so I was born and raised in the Philippines to Chinese Filipino families. Uh, I was born in poverty, actually. Mm. Um, that started, so this is about eight years old. My father got into a motor bicycle accident. And because of that, he got into some addictions, uh, drinking and smoking. And we, we lost a lot of money. And so my mom had to work and there's no divorce in the philippines there's no law so my parents eventually separated and so my mom had to wear the skirts and the the skirt and the pants in the family Mm. and she joined the church and that's how we got introduced to the church i was baptized around 10 11 years old and um so we were so poor growing up that I learned a lot of frugality when I was younger because what would have otherwise been spent on birthday cakes or gifts, my mom, we wouldn't get any gifts at all just because um, she would just rather buy rice and the staples, you know, for food. So that was, we lived in a very small house with dirt floor, no flowing water. So that was my history. And, uh, but we did have, you know, we did have um, good uh, uncles and aunts who, 
who helped. And my uncle, who noticed that I can breed tropical fishes, right? So he's like, here's a little bit of money. Why don't you kind of increase your, your fish? And, and I, started, I started selling them. This was my first introduction to entrepreneurship. I started selling them to my classmates. And eventually I was able to sell to a pet store. And they, wow. even though they undercut me because my cost was so low, right? <laughs> and, but I made money. I was able to help my mom put food on the table. And that was the beginning of my entrepreneurial venture. Mm. Um, so I graduated high school in the Philippines in Naga City. And I attended University of the Philippines for about a year. And at that time, uh, again, I was short of money. And uh, the place where I was staying was close to the Procter & Gamble factory. And what they do is that they, uh, they, any rejected products, they would sell them for 80% market value, below market value. So I started buying them because there was not a lot of material difference in terms of the effectiveness of the uh, detergent. Yeah. Anyway, so long story short, I created a business out of that one. And um, so, and then I served my mission in Baguio, Philippines. And it was there that I really realized that um, I had a potential to become, you know, like a good leader and be in business. Um, and so my mission president kind of, in, in some ways, helped me. He was a banker. And that kind of sparked my uh, interest in banking and money because I thought I was good at it. So I went to BYU, Hawaii. And um, we started a business over there. I was awarded this, this Student Entrepreneur of the Year in 2002. We imported uh, bed sheets from the Philippines, and we generated about $12,000 in revenue in six weeks operations. And uh, the profits we donated to BYU Hawaii. It's also where I met my wife, Genevieve. My wife is from, she's of Filipino descent, but she's born and raised in Hawaii. Immediately after graduation, I moved to New York. I worked on uh, Wall Street, worked for J.P. Morgan and Ernst, Ernst & Young first and J.P. Morgan. And I worked on the trading floor. It was there that I saw how money worked, right? how the financial market. So as a banker, you see the influence of one sanction to the other and interest rates and things of that nature. And I, that's where I also I got called to serve as a bishop at the age of 27 years old. So mm -hmm. I was working as a banker at the same time serving as a bishop. And it was a very, very busy <laughs> um, yeah. uh, path. But, you know, I really enjoyed it. And um, at that time, you know, we, had, we only had one child. And so it was, it was okay. And then I got accepted to graduate school at BYU. And so we did two years there. And then immediately after that, I went to um, Texas, where I worked for an oil and gas upstream consulting and investment firm, where I worked for about five years. And working from there, I was hired by Saudi Aramco, uh, the largest OPEC oil-producing country. And back then, I didn't know what, what they wanted to do. They just said, we will have what you call a corporate activity. And long story <laughs> nice. short, you know, we had an IPO, and then I handled about $140 billion of debt portfolio of Saudi Aramco. So I did help with the IPO process, uh, local listing. And then I was responsible for managing this huge portfolio of debt, dealing with rating agencies and internally funding funding companies within Aramco. So I managed that. And then now I'm an executive here at Isotrust, where I brought in some investors and connections network. And our focus is in Asia, which fits perfectly on my alley, right? I speak five different languages. I brought in capital and management expertise. So that's where we are currently. Yeah, nice. And and so you are are you one of the founders of the company then? 
of your current I'm company? I'm not one of the founders of the company, but I'm very early enough to be yeah. on the very early round uh, because yeah. when we I brought in seed capital to the company. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely still a startup feel around the office. Yes, oh, very much. Uh, we <laughs> we um, last year when I joined, there was probably only like 11 employees. So mm. I think I'm employee number 11. Yeah. And um, now we're about 40, including um, part-time and seasonal workers. And we will further increase our workforce to about 80 to 100 this year because we're going to operate in the Philippines yeah. to manufacture over there. So we're gra- growing rapidly. We just raised, uh, we're closing our Series A round. And we're pretty happy with where we are. Lots of traction and, and upside potential. Clearly, there awesome. are risks also. Sure. But yeah, that's what we got. It's yeah. heading in the right direction, it sounds like. So that's great. It's heading, yeah, hopefully, right? Like, hopefully, yeah. we can continue with the risk of the company. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. It's sort of a, a flyover of your of your timeline, your career, and, and whatnot. And so, going back to your, your upbringing, it, so how, yeah. how old were you when uh, your family joined the church? Um, I was about 10 years old. Oh, okay. I was about 10 years old. My mom was about 40 years old. I think that was about the. Uh, the age that the the my mom joined actually my mom joined two years before i got baptized but because my dad was opposed to my baptism my dad didn't join by the way because he was mm. stuck with this with his ways right drinking smoking yeah. that prevented him and so he said i didn't want cromwell me to get baptized and so i had to wait a little bit until i said dad i wanted to be baptized mm. you know yeah. So, so how would you, just with the circumstances of, you know, uh, living in poverty and in, in the Philippines and how, how would you uh, articulate your faith development? I mean, was it always something that you just naturally believed in, in higher power and, and in the context of the church? I mean, you just sort of absorbed that faith or how would you articulate your faith in that faith? Development? Yeah. So that's a very good question. My mom really was a very faithful woman and I saw her dedication. So it started with my mom she would go to the CES library and she would read mm-hmm. a lot of books and she would always just tell me stories about, you know, Heber J. Grant about this handwriting, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> and about, about President Hinckley and about Joseph Smith. So that sparked an interest. And she, she bought me all the, um, you know, those old comic book, book of Mormon. And I just read those and I, I just mm-hmm. love them. And, um, so I didn't know this one, but I was growing up. When I was growing up, I have ADD. So with ADD people, especially for me, I um, I relied more on feelings if it was true. So it resonated. It really resonated the things that I read, and then I just started feeling good every time I read the the comic book of Mormon. I felt like there was something to it. And then I started reading, reading, and then I served my mission. That really solidified my my understanding of the scriptures. It brought a lot of goodness in me. Even the people that have have cared for us were members of the church. And so that insulated me from not thinking outside, but just focusing on the teachings of the gospel. It impacted the way I, th- I think, the way I act. In fact, because of it, so I'll tell you a story. It's really interesting because in high school, everyone was non-members of the church. Mm-hmm. And since I didn't smoke, I didn't gamble, I didn't do all these bad stuff. During the, high, during the summer of 1992 to 1994, uh, the parents of my, the guy in my class who was getting into smoking and drinking, 
his parents were very particular about these activities. And so they said, well, Cromwell's a good kid. They talked to my mom and my dad saying that, hey, can he work and be good friends with my son during the summer? So I got paid because I was working in their business. But because of the fact that I wasn't drinking and smoking, and I was considered as a good kid, right? Because everyone else is drinking and smoking. It opened opportunities for me to work with my classmate. And because of that, I got exposed to their business and learned how to do dispatches for rice deliveries. Um, so that's one of the most beautiful things or blessings that I received just because I kept, you know, I was observant to the law of chastity and the word of wisdom that it differentiated me from the, all the other kids. And so every time they use the word, oh, Cromwell will go, parents would say, oh, I'd let my, my son go because Cromwell's there sort of thing. Yeah. And so it was did, good. Did, did that, did, at times, did that add even more pressure onto you? I mean, do you feel like, man, why do I got to be the good kid? Or was it sort of just in your nature? No, that it was just natural. My mom was very good. Like my mom, so before even probably I heard of the case studies in business school, my mom uh -huh. would always give us a case. When I was younger, she would always say, well, you have friends. Let's say your friend, really good friend, would give you like drink or uh, a liquor or, or smoke. How would you respond? So my mom really provided like a practical mm -hmm. case study, how we would react. So it's just a natural, by the time that I experienced these pressures, that my, my friends would just say, hey, drink or smoke. I already knew the answer. It was already pre-recorded in my brain, so it was, it was easy. So that's just kind of like um, that was just kind of like the culture that my mom raised us. So, so in large measure, I attribute my my um, success to the training that I had from the church and my mom in particular. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by your, you know, just I think a lot of people who end up going into business or who are entrepreneurial, they, they've always had those moments as a, as a young teen, whether they're sort of hustling some type of product, right? Or, uh, but in your case, it wasn't that you were just intrigued by business or wanted to earn a, a little extra money to, to take the arcade or whatever, but it was like, we, this is how we eat. Um, was it, did, even it though was that was the case? Based, it was a needs-based entrepreneurship. Yeah. It wasn't right. out of like an opportunity, but it stemmed from, it really stemmed from necessity that right. I had to figure out something I need to do to get out of this um, poverty. So, so did you notice early on that you, even though you were doing it for necessity, that you still really enjoyed it and it intrigued you? Yeah, it just came out so naturally. And so I asked myself, did Heavenly Father put me in this situation to hone the natural talents that I have, couple it with the circumstances that I was in? Hmm. So that's one of the principles that I wanted to kind of talk about today. Perfect. And, and we'll definitely get into that. And I'm curious what you advice you would give to, and maybe they'll come out in some of the, the principles we, we discussed, but you know, there are people who come from maybe a more impoverished background, right? That they're not, uh, they don't have a level of privilege that will maybe make it easier for them to get in certain business schools or whatever it is, or opportunities. Any advice you'd give to those that maybe come from a, a lower income or even in, in you know, poverty, as the, but they're reaching for and seeking higher success in their adult life? Yeah. Um, so within the context of our, our audience, really understanding your potential, understanding mm -hmm. that you're a, a child, a son or daughter of God, you can equate your current situation versus what you're taught in, in our faith. 
that you're a son of God, that you can accomplish a lot of things. So that for me, that was a bridge, yeah. right? Because, um, so my advice to them is that, yeah, you can get out of, of poverty. The, your situation, it doesn't matter what your history is. It's what you set your goals. If you want to get out, you will get out. You just have to put your mind into it. So with that said, it's it's been a the foremost most important principle for me is understanding that God's DNA is in you. You have to internalize that you're a son and daughter of God, that you are a God in an embryo, that you can unleash that power as you harness yourself. So in other words, sometimes at church we always say, I'm a child of God. We say it so often that sometimes it becomes diluted. Yes. So yeah. you need to step back and say, what does that really entail? And so for me, as soon as I understood that one, right? So I have a father in heaven that is all powerful, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. How can I be like that? And you start figuring out a way. And with that said, also, you're going to understand that the earth was created for us. It's like a gym. The earth is like a gym for me. That if you want to build your muscles, let's say I want to build my strength in my biceps and triceps. There are equipments in the gym that you can strengthen your biceps and triceps. Spiritually speaking, it's the same way. If I want to build my patience and my entrepreneurial nature, there are equipments out there. You have to just have to look at the challenges. Yeah. yeah. So, and so that requires a lot of faith, right? And this is one thing that I really want to uh, say is that you have to exercise that faith. If you remember the story in the New Testament where, where this lady touched the hem of the garment of Jesus Christ, her faith was so strong that in Mark chapter 5, verse 30, it, sta it stated that Jesus was like surrounded by a lot of people, but all of a sudden he said, who touched my garment? Power came out of me, close quote. And um, this impacted me when I was like 18 years old. I was reading Jesus the Christ by Elder Talmadge. He said in page 296, it's like a footnote, he said here, quote, Faith is of itself a principle of power. By its presence or absence, by its fullness or paucity, even the Lord was in his influence and in great measure controlled in the bestowal or withholding of blessings, close quote. So I took that, I was like, that is so powerful. So in common term, when my son or my daughter, when they say, Dad, I not only did my homework, I did my violin or piano, I helped mom do this, and I fixed your bed on top of that. Will <laughs> you allow me, dad, to play Minecraft for 30 minutes? Uh -huh. I, in large and great measure, I am controlled. I can't say no to that, unless my daughter asked me for a brand new car, right? That's a maturity <laughs> issue. But yeah. Heavenly Father works the same way. If we make a covenant with Him, we say, I'm going to do this, Heavenly Father, I'm going to do this. Can I bind you to this? And will you bestow upon me the blessing if I've done every single thing? On top of that, I've gone the extra mile. That's what happened to the, the lady that touched the garment of Jesus Christ. It impacted the way I think quite a bit. So everything after that going forward, I just went ahead what I wanted to do. And I would say to Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, these are the things I'm going to do. I wanted Heavenly Father to give me the instructions, but I felt like I should be the ones giving Heavenly Father, offer him the things that I wanted to do, and in turn, can he grant me these things? So, 
um, that's the first principle, really yeah. understanding who you are, that you can become like him and working towards that. So from a spiritual sense and everything else will just follow. Yeah. You know, there's a few big lessons and principles that I've learned so far in, you know, in my life, I'm about halfway through it, <laughs> but that, that this, it's it really is come down, does come down to, it's a battle of identity. Like if we can grasp and absorb the divine identity that's been given to us, like we can do anything just, you know, yeah. I mean, it feels that way, but I, I'd imagine, you know, just the, the, the pressures of life, you know, being, being in poverty and, and all, all these you know, limitations and seeing others with more and, and you can begin to create this false identity of like, well, maybe they're, maybe I'm broken. Maybe they're a different type of child of God and, and I, than me, but in reality, we're all children of God and that creates remarkable potential as we hold exactly. that in the forefront of our mind. Right? Yes. And that's why the, um, our leaders constantly remind us, right. That we have this potential. Yeah. We are gods in embryo. I read that talk by elder Marion G Romney about, that you are a God in embryo. And I really took that to heart. So that's a lesson that I just, it's just indelibly printed in my heart that as soon as you understand that one, yeah. nothing is impossible. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, so I'm curious with uh, your decision to, and we'll, we'll sort of loop in some of these principles as we go and make sure we don't skip over anything, but um, your decision to go to uh, MBA school and you went to, to BYU uh, for yeah for business school there. Uh, was that always in the, in the plan that, you know, I was, you had this, this passion for business and entrepreneurship that the MBA school was a, a must in, in your plan. Yes. So when I served my mission, I, first of all, I had no idea what MBA school was. I didn't know what investment banking was, but I <laughs> yeah. attended BYU. Uh, I knew what a banker was because my mission president was a banker and, and I'm like, I can be good with money. And so at BYU, Hawaii, there's this investment banker. Uh, his name is Craig Allen, and he was the managing director of Bear Stearns. And he, he came to BYU, volunteer taught, and I'm like, this is so cool. And um, I said, I want to be like you. And then I even volunteered. I said, I don't want to even want to get paid. I just want to be your tutor. And so, so I learned from that point, I'm like, and so that exposed me to the thought process. And I said, you know what, I'm going to get masters of business because I want to be in business school. I want, this is what I really want to do. And I want to master certain skill sets that is required for me to run a business. So even before going to New York, I already knew that I was going to get an MBA. So that's the answer. Nice. And then, so how many years passed between uh, graduation at uh, BYU Hawaii and then returning to NBA Five school? years. Okay. Five years. And um, there's a reason for that one because I was called as a bishop and I didn't oh, yeah. just want to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's um, possible to do NBA school while you're a bishop, but I don't think it's recommended, right? <laughs> it was hard. I tried, I tried to apply at NYU and I got accepted, but I didn't take it. So yeah. um, I, I've always wanted to go BYU Provo. And um, I already I already had the New York investment banking sales and trading background, so I I felt like my reasoning was I can do, you know, private equity or start a business without having the, without going to like East Coast schools. Yeah. So I've always wanted to go with a church school, which is BYU. Nice. So you said you earlier on you got a, accepted to NYU business school, but then it wasn't a good yeah, time. And I did apply. 
and uh-huh. I got accepted. And then, um, but BYU was always my priority. So nice. that was nice. it. So I was just try- trying to test the um, whether I could get accepted to, yeah. <laughs> to NYU. Um, nice. So yeah, so that's that's it. So I I eventually chose BYU. Um, nice. That's what. Yeah. So tell me about those those years of living a busy professional life and you're trying to be a father and a husband and then you're called as bishop and you know that that's always sort of a broader question that professionals have is just that finding harmony in it all right that you know you're trying to establish a career but you also want to give service so any any principles whether the ones we're planning to talk about or others that that come to the the surface yeah so great question during that time again we only had one child and um when you're starting out, when you're starting out, there's really no balance. You're working 50 to 60, 70 hours even or more, and you just have to really manage your time uh, really well. So you just have to, again, boil down to which are the most important in your life, right? So that that would be your work, your calling, and your family. Well, actually, there's the the, the order matters, right? So you have family, work, and church. Yeah, And so I found myself, I was working, including church, about 90 hours a week <clears throat> because Bishop Rick, and in New York, in Brooklyn, that time, the area that I covered was about 20 square miles or more. Mm. So it was really, really big. But I never neglected to, for me, happiness, I was writing my journal the other day. I said, what, call, what, what makes me happy is that that's when I read my scriptures, I pray, I spend time with my wife and my kids. Anything after that? is secondary so i always find and found found and find fulfillment when i've done those things all the rest just kind of kind of take care of itself my advice to people that are just starting out their career is that don't expect that there's going to be a lot of balance in the first year but you need to carve out the time which is the most important for you so if i was working let's say on the trading floor back then if my wife calls me and I know immediately I'd answer if this is important. I said, "Can is this really important now? I will answer. But if not, can we talk about it later? And then we would adjust our time accordingly, right? You carve out really certain amounts of time and all the other things. We never, you know, we my wife and I would, would our plans have always been like, let's go backpacking or that kind of stuff. Those had to be delayed because the most important thing was to establish my career um alongside with raising the family those are the two top and then the church right everything else was not not as important so you have to prioritize and make sure that um um you kind of ignore all the other things that that are there yeah so going from being bishop you know <laughs> did that make mba school seem easier <laughs> because a little it, bit easier you know my first case as a bishop was murder and oh my without goodness. disclosing too much information, I was six months into the job and a member, you know, said, hey, I killed somebody and I moved from country A to the United States. What should I do? And maybe because I was so naive that you felt like I was comfortable to relate that, <laughs> but it was oh, a hard wow. case. Yeah. Um, my point is, the answer is, yeah, it kind of made um, business school a little bit easier and uh, because you're used to working really long hours. So with that experience of professional and, and church kind of gave me a blend of how it was going to be like going to a church school. Yeah. Um, I, you know, so a lot of the issues that you hear now, um, in some ways, it, the situation I was in as a bishop, 
allowed me to grow much faster and I lost a lot of hair <laughs> as you can see <laughs> I was 27 years old literally my hair was already like this it was a it was a tough situation to be in in terms of my my head development you know <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so the answer to your question is yes that that's really important. Nice. but um to answer your question to bridge the the question is that you really have to know yourself yeah um I've, I've known myself, so I've done my self-awareness is key to becoming successful. And if you know what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are and your opportunities and play your strengths on the things that you have leverage on is really key. So let me give you an example. Yeah. Um, I have ADD, but I've learned coping behaviors to help my ADD. So. Um, when I want to be really structured and very logical, <clears throat> I close the door, I listen to soundtracks, and that really makes me a methodical, logical thinker. But when I, when I need, when I require um, creativity, I just let everything loose and my mind just kind of thinks all over and I love it. So heads I win, tails I win still. So some of the impediments that are given to us are actually blessings. You just have to value them and use them in the right context in the right situation. So I feel like I can use my right and left brain really well. And that has served me well, both when I was serving, when I was working as a banker for JP Morgan and also as the same as a bishop, because it allows you for different creative ideas to resolve issues and concerns, things of that nature. So um, it's really important for LDS MBAs, for especially for those people who are just starting to understand um, their strengths and their weaknesses. Currently, yeah. um, where I'm at, um, before joining here at Isotrust, what happened was I knew the company, I met the CEO five years ago, and I knew that they needed capital, they needed executive expertise, they needed Asia. So before he even asked, I said, to the CEO, I said, Nate, um, look, I can bring capital for you. I already lined up these people. I have the expertise. I speak five different Asian language and that's your process. Those are my strengths and I can play well and I can dominate well. And so because I knew myself and I knew the situation, it was an automatic blend. Hmm. Yeah. And that's sort of part of the, at least in my experience, especially those college years, that it wasn't so much what I was learning in the classroom as much as it was I was learning about myself and how I function. You know, for me, those the traditional education and the college format, I, I didn't excel there. I mean, I survived. I got out with a degree and it was great. <laughs> and, and even myself, I experienced some level of ADD. I've never been diagnosed, but you know, even you talking through these things, I'm like, wow, I resonate so much with that. With I listen to soundtracks a lot too, getting work done. And, and, and I love when I just let my brain go and, and let it be creative, you know, but I, I remember those a moment during college years, I would, uh, you know, another part of ADD is you, you can hyper-focus on things. So I remember feeling so much guilt when I would hyper-focus on things that weren't related to my schoolwork. And I'd sort of be like, man, why do I do that? Like, I gotta, you know, I gotta get back on task here. And then it wasn't yeah. until later I realized, no, that's actually just sort of a thing that happens with ADD and, and you, you can figure it out. And so any advice for individuals who are just as in this process of getting to know themselves, like, is there anything they can do or to become more self-aware of who they are and how they tick? Yeah. So 
so the first step is to really sit down. I keep a journal entry. I've started journal entering when I was 17 years old. Hmm. So over those periods of years, so my recommendation is that even if you don't do journal entry, you write down things that naturally come out, right? If you're good at math, you're good at speaking, you're good at numbers, write those down and then internalize yourself. How do you learn? Are you a more hmm. of a listener or more of a talker? Uh, so that's exactly what I did. I said, I'm, uh, I'm really good with, with math and numbers, but I get so distracted. And it, wasn't, and it wasn't until like going to graduate school that I got diagnosed. I really took the test and I'm like, actually I have this ADD, right? Um, so sitting down, understanding what your strengths are, writing things down, what are you good at? Naturally, historically, ask your parents what you're naturally mm -hmm. good at. That's what, exactly what we're doing now with our kids. We're just observing them, what comes up naturally. Um, talk to your parents, your family, your colleagues. That gives you a good 360-degree view. So let, let me give you an example. Um, my son, and so my son is like, we try to get him into piano. Just never worked. <laughs> try to give him guitar. Just never worked. You know, he's 10 years old. We said, maybe we should, let's try violin. Just clicked. Huh. We don't even have to remind him. In the morning, we at 8 o'clock, he's like practicing already without being wow. reminded. And it just comes naturally. Like, just literally, he just... My, my point is that your parents would know because they have seen you. Your friends will know where your natural talents are. And then you create those and evaluate yourself. What can you do with those strengths? And you develop them. So on your strengths, you invest. You put in resources, time and talent and money, whatever that is. On your weaknesses, you find a channel where you can apply your weaknesses. So the ADD, there are benefits, right? Your creativity... And um, so you apply that in a particular situation. If not, you really have to tutor yourself or partner with other people who have those strengths uh, to offset some of your weaknesses. So in yeah. a nutshell, have this introspection. I usually do it on Sundays. I would write down. I have 17 volumes of journal, by the way. So I just go through those things. Wow. And it has become, it has really become like a, a really good evaluation of myself over the years and i can see it and i can expand and i can tweak a little things here and there it really helps me a lot so introspection on sunday so whenever you have free time write it in your journal really pour out your soul and then be very honest with yourself yeah you know? oh, that's really helpful love that uh, this next principle we have it looks like a math equation here so integrity plus competency is better than the sum of Bitcoin's Tesla and Amazon combined. <laughs> Break That's that down correct. for us. Yeah. Um, so I'll give you a few data points there. If you think about a credit card, why do people use credit cards? It's just a piece of metal, but it holds trillions or millions, billions of dollars of transactions. Hmm. The reason why because there's trust that that will deliver at the minimal cost. As soon as you break that trust of the credit card, you'll have to find security operators to find your money. You can't do transactions. It delays the transactions. The whole financial system, I work in the financial system in, at Wall Street, and I've seen that a dishonest person can ruin and keep the cost of the transaction really high. So for me, 
to to be really um, to be trusted, you need to have both the integrity first and competency. So in college, so I was a poor college student. I was going to BYU, and then I was employed as a tour guide at the Polynesian Cultural Center. And there was a policy to not take tips or gratuity. And um, so I became a tour guide. It was very tempting. There's uh, one of the tours <clears throat> I was offered $50. For a college student who didn't make a lot of money, it was $5.25 per hour. That was like my rate to be paid. And to be paid $50, that's like one day's worth of you know work. It was very tempting. But... I made commitments to myself and to, you know, as a covenant person to be who I am, to be honest with myself, just because I knew if I, if I violated that covenant that I made, I will be dishonest with larger things. So I actually remember that so well that I made a journal entry out of that one. So in fact, I brought my journal entry here so I can read this to you. I wrote this on February 9th, 2001. At the end of the tour, this is what I said. The father was offering me a tip of $50, but I politely declined. I know I needed that money so badly because I'm really short of money, but I'm not going to trade my integrity for such a non-lasting material. My honesty will last. The thought hmm. process was, down the road, if I would be offered such a big money, it would be easier for me to walk away. And so it goes back to what I told you about my mom giving me case studies. If I could succeed in the small case practical applications, I can apply it to bigger things. So uh, currently, the lead investor in our in our company is was my former managing director at JP Morgan. So that was like 15, 16 years ago. And I asked him, what do you invest in me? It's like, look, I'm not really investing in you, whether it's your company or somebody else. I just know you're competent and you're honest. I can trust you with my money. And so that's such a comforting, comforting um, realization that those things combined can move mountains. Um, I have another friend um, in the Middle East. He said, Cromwell, I have turned, I've made some, I made money for these guys in, in other investments. And he said, Cromwell, I have $200,000. I'll just give this to you. You decide where you want to invest this money because I trust you. So that's such a high bar. And I, and I can trace it back to the day that I made that decision, that I made a covenant that I will be honest and I will have to develop my integrity and my competence level. So that, anyway, so these are the blessings that come from yeah. that integrity. There's a quote that I want to tell you that I want to share here by Colonel Ardant Dupic. He said here, what's really, this fascinates me quite a bit because he said, four brave men who do not know each other or trust each other will not dare attack a lion. However, four less brave, not super less, less brave, but knowing each other well and can trust each other well, sure of their reliability and consequently of mutual aid will attack resolutely, close quote. Hmm. So it's just a fat, powerful statement. So if you combine that they are very competent and they can be trustworthy, they can attack a lion Yeah, because they can trust each other. So that's a powerful statement to me that, that if you remove the competency and integrity, all those Bitcoins, Tesla, Amazon will go away. 
will be wiped yeah. out. Yeah, that's a, and and it's interesting how you how you frame that because you could have easily just said, you know, have have high integrity, you know, because integrity is is powerful. But to to pair it with that competency is really interesting, and especially in the context of this interview where we have individuals that are both very spiritual, but also very professional and, and very accomplished or, or, you know, or working their way there where it's like that integrity, that foundation of integrity we learn obviously through our gospel experience and, and life. Mm -hmm. And then you also have to be on this road of competency. Like the reason you are probably going to business school or went through business school is to become more competent so that you can match that up with the integrity that you've developed over, over time too. And that really makes you a well-rounded uh, contributor to the world, right? Exactly. Yeah, it cannot be one. It cannot be one or the other. It has to be and. It cannot be and. Or. It can't be or. It can be integrity and competency. They have to go hand in hand. Uh, I love that. Yeah. All right. Next principle is uh, consistent humility is key to godhood. Unpack that for us. Yeah. Um, what I noticed in my life, and I'm not perfect, just like everyone else. A lot of times the blessings can ebb and flow and blessings are a function of our obedience. If you look at the Nephite society, even the brother of Jared, for that matter, for those people reading the scriptures, right? So the brother of Jared, as soon as they got to the promised land, he started, he stopped praying and he actually got chastised. And, he, and the Lord said, how come you have not communicated with me? And so he repented and then he did it again. So your your struggle is going to be like up, down, up, down, just like Nephite civilization. I noticed for me is that I want to avoid that. I want to be, even if I'm blessed or even if I'm the down low, I'm still going to be the same Cromwell that would be praying, doing consistent effort to be humble, to be, to be modest. What I noticed in my experience from working Wall Street or in the Middle East, as soon as people get money or position, they kind of forget God and they kind of forget who themselves are. And it creates this hubris or pride that they make wrong decisions and it causes their downfall. I don't want to be like that. I want it to be so even if right now, like I'm, you know, I'm, we live a very comfortable life or I can, I can purchase, let's say a very high end car. I still just drive a modest car or, because I want to make sure that my kids, it's not just me being affected, but it's the second, the third, fourth generation. If my kids see that I'm like buying all these things, even if we say that we've earned it, but our examples are different, inherently or, or implicitly, they're processing that information. So I'm trying to avoid kind of like this up and down cycle. I want my children to be grounded, uh, morally grounded, that they're not, they're not going to be overcome by wealth. Um, so that's so that's why uh, I use the word consistent humility. I don't like this variability, and so it's really important to keep on doing those things. You you probably notice it in your life or somebody else's life that as soon as like, hey, I got this, you kind of forget God sometimes, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But I I have this uh, reminder at home and in my office, consistency in humility, and that's really important for me to uh, so that. Uh, you know, so that's really important for you. To, if you want to have this spiritual giant status, um, you have to be consistent. The variability, there, there's definitely going to be variability, but if you can lower that variability a little bit, um, that that's really good. 
Yeah. And, and you're talking variability that, you know, sometimes maybe you have a good year and so you can go, uh, you know, go on, you know, just sort of, uh, go, go on the vacations and the, and buy all the things and which is, which is fine from time to time, but it's by keeping it consistent, you know, you can still do some of those things, but being consistent that way, there's not ups and downs. And then it confuses the humility aspect of like, well, you know, why now rather than then? Right. Exactly. Because if, if you think about, it, let's say you got blessed and all of a sudden you live that life and then your children in their formative years falls under that time that you become prideful. That's the thing that they're going to learn. And so you want to avoid that, right? Yeah. You want to kind of want to avoid that. Um, yeah. Definitely mistakes will happen, right? And um, here's one thing I want to say about that is the, um, you're familiar with Ray Dalio? So he's a uh, billionaire hedge fund. And I love this quote about him. This is what he said. <clears throat> I learned that everyone makes mistakes and has weaknesses. And that one of the most important things that differentiates people is their approach to handling them. I learned that there's an incredible beauty to mistakes because embedded in each mistake is a puzzle and a gem that I could get, if I could get it resolved, a principle that I could use to reduce my mistakes in the future. I mm. love that quote. Yeah. And the faster for me, my, so, so kind of like talking about repentance, right? Like you have to reflect on that mistake. If you don't learn from that mistake, you repeat that mistake again. But if you sit back, ponder, learn to avoid that mistake again, your bounce to the next level is much higher. So that's one aspect of repentance, right? The other aspect of repentance is how fast you repent. Because if you have prolonged that repentance process, that means your next learning won't be until probably two years from now. I'm just saying the reason why AI, artificial intelligence, is exacerbating the, the economy. It's because it's immediately, as soon as they spot a trend that's misaligned with the trend that they have set, they fix it immediately. That new added data point strengthens that trend line. Mm. Like for us individuals, if we prolong that learning, we know that it's a mistake and then we just kept it there. Your rate of progression slows down quite a bit. So there's two things of correcting mistakes. One is identifying them and then immediately resolving them and learning them. So that's something that I've, I've, I've truly um, value in my life. That's why I keep a journal because I said, here's some of the mistakes I learned today and what did I learn from this mistakes and I'm not going to do it again. And I encourage my children to do the same. So my children are doing journal entries now because it allows them to reflect immediately of what thing, the things that they have done nicely and the things that they could improve or better improve. Yeah. And I think this is really helpful. I would imagine, you know, just as you describe your, your background of being raised in, in poverty that, you know, you probably see your kids now and you think, well, I don't want to force them to live in poverty. So they learn the same lessons, but these are some approaches and concepts to, to consider in order to retain that humility that you got from, from those impoverished years that you still want your kids to learn just maybe you don't want them to live in poverty just to learn it right yeah and the great example of this one is Mitt right Mitt Romney <clears throat> and his dad grew up in poverty but Mitt is not spoiled you know they had to mow their lawns you know I read his biography um, and then they had to work and they improved upon what their parents have built on 
And so for my children, I really try to teach my children. I always tell them my history. I said, I want you to, I push them hard to the next level. I want them to be, I don't want them to be prideful. I don't want them to be, but I want them to build on the progress. They're, they live a comfortable life more than I yeah. had been, um, had been to. But we try to keep them grounded. Um, my kids, you know, I, I tell my kids, like, just be considerate of other people. Show them the way. Don't, you know, overblow situations that you've traveled the world. Or, you know, my kids have traveled around the world. They've pretty much seen Europe, Japan, Asia, just all over. And they're very well exposed. But we just tell them that some kids never have, haven't traveled. And so you just say, you know, these are the things that I've learned. And, and be gracious about what you learn, but not so much like to break. Oh, yeah, I've been there, been there. Don't appear that way, <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's kind of what um, what I try to teach my kids and about nice. learning from your mistakes, about perfecting your skill set, um, understanding who they really are. Right. And your last principle here, I think, is really applicable to 2022 when it's so easy to uh, see others' lives and to compare yourself to other people. And and the last principle is thou shalt not compare. How do you do that? Yeah. In fact, this is one of the four that I I thought that maybe because of time constraint that I would just limit it to one or two. So DNC four, you're probably going to think Doctrine and Covenant section four, but it's four DNCs. Four D and C meaning do not complain, do not criticize, do not condemn, do not um, compare uh, or condemn. So do not compare. I um, Comparing yourself to other people really makes you unhappy. And I learned this firsthand when I was really young that I shouldn't do it. I, so after graduating from BYU Hawaii, moving to New York, I was like comparing myself to to the kids that have grown up in New York, you know? So it's kind of like when you grow up in the Philippines and Hawaii, your skill set is limited to those environments that you're in. Uh-huh. And yeah, you're competing with these kids that have graduated from Harvard, their parents like investment bankers, they already knew what, what they were doing, right? And I was really feeling like discouraged. And so my boss took me, I said, look, I, I don't know if I can compete here. And my boss sat me down and said, look, I intended you to work on one thing and that's the only thing you should really be caring about. He said that um, I will judge you for the, the assignments that I've given you, and that's the only thing that you should worry about. The only highway or the only race that you should be concerned about is the highway that you're in, that road that you're going to be in. Do not look at somebody else because we're all different. And he told me, he researched the, uh, the quote from Susie Kasim. This is what she said. Whatever your passion is, keep doing it. Don't waste time chasing after success or comparing yourself to others. Every flower blooms at a different pace, even though they're from the same species. Hmm. One or two second difference, still different, right? Even though they're excel doing what your passion is and only focus on perfecting it. Eventually, people will see what you're great at doing. And if you're truly great, success will come chasing after you, close quote. So I learned that in my life, and ever since after that, I learned that the only thing that I compare myself is my progress yesterday to today. Have I increased? And I'm so much more happy. I know some people will have their decamillions or hundred million billion, but I'm not comparing myself to those guys, right? I'm happy with where I am, feeding my family. They're comfortable. I'm developing my kids, and I'm really happy. 
uh, granted that, you know, when you do that, you I feel like you get blessed more. And so both from a spiritual and temporal aspect, you're blessed because you're happier and you don't get demoralized. So in life, you know, the only race that we should be worrying about is the highway in which we're, we're in. Um, when we start comparing ourselves to others, we devalue our lives. That's really the reality and we feel insecure. So don't compare. And the other one I want to share is uh, be grateful. And mm. we hear this all the time, right? Yeah. But, um, so I've never, I had never been grateful about my life growing up sort of thing. Like, you know, you just kind of keep on growing, going. And um, at, at one point I, uh, I was admitted to the hospital I had this terrible headache and um, during that situation, that was the only time that I was like thanking my heavenly father for my, my health, you know? And I'm like, why was I not doing this before? I'm like, you, you literally realize the value of your health once you're sick. Right. And so I yeah. said, you know, I don't want to be like, I don't want to be like this anyway. So I wrote in my journal. Um, so I wrote this in 2017. I, I wrote it. I said, during the second night, I had a struggle with my soul. I woke up at night around 1 a.m. as my headache was so sore again, and I was cold. Then I prayed with a lot of effort to me communicate with my God as the thoughts of what if there was something more to what I was feeling? What if I were to die? Was I ready? I thought about our friend, Lisa Sigmiller, who died a week and a half ago of meningitis. I then realized there and then that if God had called me, I was ready and that I was so grateful for the bounteous life I've lived on earth with my family and friends. I was not afraid to die because I said that I was grateful. So really thinking for where you are and, and it ties to the previous one. When you don't compare, you become more grateful because you see the blessings immediately. And those are things that are really, really important to me and principles that I've learned and everything else just takes care of itself. Hmm. Cromwell, this has been uh, so insightful and inspiring. I've, I've really enjoyed our time here. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, your, your, your current position and it sounds like you're, you're with a dynamic company doing some cool things. What, what's got you excited or, or what problems are you facing that, uh, that intrigue you the most? What, what comes yeah, to mind so, when I ask um, that? So our company, Isotrust, we develop carbon fiber towers, <clears throat> that would replace steel towers in the 5G establishment. So if you think about 5G roll, um, rollout, you would require steel towers that would, that would be like 100 feet, 200 feet, 150 feet, and it has to withstand wind speeds of anywhere from 70 miles per hour to 200 miles per hour. Hmm. So um, our towers are made out of carbon fiber and with its specific design, we can reduce the usage of the carbon fiber from let's say a pound to a quarter of a pound, which makes it very lightweight, a tenth of the weight of steel, just as strong, it's eco-friendly. So that's what we're, we're trying to build out, right? And the, the major challenges that we see is that steel is like a commodity, you know, like everyone yeah. knows how to use it. So everyone's comfortable with it. So our situation is kind of like having all these cars produced by Toyota, Toyota, Honda, GM, and you have a new Tesla that's yeah. like trying to revolutionize. So there's inertia, right, amongst these big established um, companies that are so used to steel. And so we're slowly educating the public of using it. And what's good about our product now is that given the commodity price increases of steel, um, our, our cost now is 
cost parity or our prices now are at parity or a little bit slightly higher with steel. So our biggest break was last year in November, we finally got this PO and then that was a sign that our product really, um, and so, you know, in December we, so our products now are being accepted in the market. And then we have a lot of interest in India in the Middle East and in Asia where there's so billions of dollars being poured into the economy because of the 5G rollout. Um, in December, we were working here 24-7 or 24-6. We shifts because it was, we were so busy. We had to hire a lot of temporary people because we had to finish. We had to ship at a, a, a specific time. And, um, and then we got a strategic investor from Japan who's um, helping us with distribution in Asia. So, and they're a publicly traded company. I brought in friends over, you know, my managing director and friends who just invested. And so we're well capitalized. Uh, we're, we're expanding our, our sales. But the biggest inertia is, again, you know, the, um, yeah. the educational aspect, teaching people that carbon fiber is not, gonna, it's not, it's not expensive anymore, that we're very price competitive, and that we're, we're kind of excited. In, we're still trying to be under the radar because we want to avoid um, direct competition, if you will. And that's the reason why we're putting our manufacturing in the Philippines, not in in areas where it can be easily copied. And we um, and we're trying to keep the trade secret within our firm. We have all the IPs, you know, the patents mm. of our product, and we are growing. We just moved into this new facility. We were literally in a in Alpine Village in the very bottom floor, and you can hear people like it's an apartment like flushing and so it's like yeah. our garage like a typical garage startup mode and we finally moved and we got sales we got government grants we got about almost um almost um three quarters of a million grant from the government uh, so both non-dilutive funding and dilutive from investors it's a testament that we're gaining traction yeah and so we're really excited about that one you know one thing that made me not sleep at night sometimes is the um what if you know it there's a new um covid that would restrict movement right like mm. the sales are delayed but we have risk mitigation strategies to address those and, yeah and we're happy with where we are but i gotta tell you lots of fasting on the founder in my end you know we really try we're really trying to bind the lord like i told you that we will do every <laughs> single thing will you do every after all we yeah. can do can you do the rest for us? Trying to be as, as really obedient and faithful. So um, there are certain things that our minds cannot reach anymore that you would want to have divine assistance from that point forward. And that's really where true faith comes in. Well, that's great to hear. And, and maybe there's a, a carbon fiber temple in the, in the future somewhere. Huh? That, yes. Uh, <laughs> that's a very good. Yeah. So this, so I, I live in uh, Tooele County and I'm watching the, the uh, Desert Peak Temple go up. And right now it's just a bunch of steel beams. So maybe we need yeah. some carbon fiber over there. So Exactly. Exactly. These bikes right here are our designs uh, that you oh, can cool. see in the background. But yeah, that's true. Especially when the uh, whole Florida condo collapse happened, we've got oh, yeah. a lot of interest. So one of the key avenues that we're working on now is the um, uh, concrete reinforcement, hmm. because what they found in in Florida is that you know the steel reinforcement were corroded, and so our structures don't corrode; they can last up to hundred years. Whereas steel, if you put them in a uh, in a coastal high humidity environment, it can only last for eight to ten years, and you have to replace oh, really? them. 
Wow. Yeah. So our structure, the, the total lifetime cost of our product will be cheaper than steel because steel, you have to replace every, I don't know, 15 to anywhere from 10 to 15, 20 years. Whereas our products, you don't have to replace for the next hundred years. Yeah. Wow. That's a, yeah. that's, I mean, it's just these little technologies you don't realize are happening behind the scenes that are really re- revolutionary. So that's a, that's awesome. I'm glad to hear it's it's headed in the right direction. Uh, Kromo, again, this has been so fascinating and inspiring. The last question I have for you is if you're in front of a, an audience full of MBA students, you know, Latter-day Saint MBA students or business professionals, what final advice would you give them? Um really know who you are that's really important out of that thought process that um understanding who you are what your strengths and weaknesses are is key to your development progress and um always include god in everything you do um you know as lds members that you guys hear that one but i think more importantly is always find out what's something very unique about you um, for me, my example is I speak five different languages. I know Asia really well. Not a lot of people have that, right? So if you're going to channel the pool to, let's say, 100, there's probably two or three people that would know five different languages, know Asia really well, have the capital and connections in both countries. So I was talking to a student, actually an MBA student, This, uh, they were focusing on like wanting to... to establish a business here in the U.S. And I told them, like, look, how many students from your country with no English educated in the United States and can have all the connections? He was like, just us. I'm like, so why, how come you're looking at other areas that are probably other people's uh, court, right? And so that kind of opened his mind. It's like, yeah, I got to think about what I can do. So really understanding where your strengths are and leveraging that with the assets, the resources you have will certainly differentiate you. So if you think about David Milliman, right? Born in Brazil, speaks Brazilian. He's doing things in Brazil. If you think about Mitt, who's like auto industry and then Harvard Business School, he capitalized on those, um, on those uh, strengths that he has is this network we have our own network and don't forget the social capital of, of the church, right? So you can tap into it. So in a nutshell, again, um, to, to close this, the very first one that I, I mentioned is really internalize the meaning that you're a child of God out of that one, you'll know the route that you'll have to take, know your strengths are, and then dominate those hone it because you're most likely the only one that would fill that role and then involve God in everything you do and be grateful. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guest and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.